Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. Uh, three to pre-K and head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. In the back, the rest of you, if you have a Bible, grab it, turn it to the book of Philippians. That's in the New Testament. About halfway through the New Testament is the book of uh, Philippians. Um, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The, the text we're going to be looking at this morning is in your order of worship. And uh, as always, if you don't own a Bible, like if, this is, if the Christian thing is new to you and... and um, you know, the, the last Bible you ever saw was Grandpappy's, and it was, it, it was hard to open, and it had so many these and thous, you're still not exactly sure what it meant. We, ha- we have uh, translations in the back, uh, a bunch of Bibles in the back that we would love to give you. That's our gift to you, so go grab one of those uh, either now or, or whenever, but, but don't leave, leave here without one, okay? So, uh, if you've been here, you know. If not, we'll, we'll catch you up. We've been taking, since uh, about January, we've been working through this book, this, this New Testament letter, the Philippians, this thing that's, that's the, the, what it's trying to accomplish, what the, the Apostle Paul is trying to accomplish by writing it, is to tell us what it will look like to be a community formed by the gospel of Jesus. In other words, what should the church look like? What should this community that we call the church look like if it's to be formed by the gospel of Jesus? Remember? And so uh, over the last few weeks, we've seen an argument build where uh, Paul is saying, like, look, to, to be a follower of Christ means to, to long to have your life shaped like his, to be shaped like even his death. Um, and, then, and then last week, uh, we heard that uh, in the midst of all of that, that where we are is not where we will be, but it can't be where we've been. You remember that? That where we are currently as people is not where we will be, but it can never be where we've been as Christians. This week, though, the gauntlet gets thrown down. Because we like to believe, I think, that we can ride the fence. Right? You can be a fencer, go, I don't know, kind of, I kind of see both sides of this, and I'm going to just kind of keep one leg on either side of this issue. Well, today is for all of us fence riders, both openly and secretively. We're in, we're in uh, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse uh, 17, so if you have your place there, if you'd stand, that's our habit here, in honor of God's word. We're going to start in verse 17. We're going to read all the way through the first verse of chapter 4, which is not very far, so don't get nervous. And as we do so, let's just remember that this is God's Word, that it's given uh, for our good, but it, it, it is authoritative. It lays claim on us. It is God active and living and speaking to us. So let's, let's hear it in that way. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, we come into this place, whether we recognize it or not, as needy people. And probably me most of all. And so, Lord, I I would ask that you would meet us in our neediness. Meet us in our... in, in whatever shape of that need we've brought into this room, whether that is... Um, whether that is need for comfort, whether that is need for challenge, whether that is need for new life, for you opening our hearts, whether that's need for uh, to be roused from our sleepiness as Christians. Lord, we, we ask that you would meet us and that you would answer that need with the fullness of yourself. Lord, let the, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So here's my guess as we get started this morning, whether you're visiting with us or not. My, my guess is that that passage probably hit you a little funny. Because it uses language we don't really like to hear, especially in regards to religious stuff. I mean, if you're not a Christian, it probably concerned some of the stuff you thought about Christians and the things that you are most alarmed by, by Christians uh, because it sounded a little harsh. I mean, enemies? Who talks like that? Right? That, that seems to kind of confirm all of the, the critiques you hear from, from these new atheist guys like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and guys like that who are like, see, they, they, they use this rhetoric that just makes people angry and it promotes violence and blah, blah, blah. And, and so that seems to confirm that. But, you know, at, at the same time, Though this passage can come across like someone is shouting, especially depending on how you read it internally, right? It sounds like sh- someone's shouting, declaring their rightness and everyone else's wrongness. Uh, at the same time, the stakes of this passage are pretty high. There are a lot of things we could talk about from it, but, but one thing seems to jump out. I think it's the thing that probably jumped out to most of us, maybe not all of us, but probably most of us, and that's the notion of being an enemy of the cross of Christ. So, so what we're going to look at this morning is, is that. We're going to look at it, and you have an outline there. Hopefully, if you want to use that, that'll be helpful to you. We're going to look at what it means. What does it mean to be a, uh, an enemy of the cross of Christ? What does it look like, and how can it change? And what we're going to find, ultimately, is that when it comes to reconciliation with God, there is no neutral ground. When it comes to reconciliation with God, when it comes to where we're at with God, there is no neutral ground. God speaks in ones and zeros, unfortunately, on this in this issue. It's digital, not analog. You know what I mean by that? Like it's either one or it's either one thing or the other. There is no neutral ground. Okay? So long before we get into what this means, we have to hit some assumptions because Paul's writing from a different set of assumptions. That, than we have. And, and one of the reasons why it's so hard for us to hear this language of, of enemies uh, is, that we, is, is that we don't think like that when we're talking about religious truth, do we? We don't use words like enemies when we talk about religious truth. That's because our culture has taught us that anything in the spiritual realm, and we tend to divorce those two, right? We have what happens here. And then we got the spiritual realm, and that's somewhere in the clouds, and da da da. We that's that's the way the Western mind works. And um, but but we have what we have said is whatever happens here, okay, that's grounded, and we can say this is true. But it, but in the spiritual realm, that amounts to preference. That amounts to a preference. In that way, we think that whether you're following Jesus or Buddha is is very similar to like whether or not you prefer your steak medium rare, or well done. I mean, if you'd. Um, you know, if, if you'd visit our small group on Wednesday nights, uh, what, what you would find is a lot of opinions about food, 
right? We tend to share those a lot. I'm not really sure why. My wife and I talk about it all the time. Like, why do we end up talking and arguing about food all the time? And I don't know, but we do. But, but here's, the, here's the thing. At the end of the day, Chris Lasseter and I are not enemies because I do not think jerk chicken is the height of culinary masterpiece, right? That's okay. We're not enemies. Nor uh, would I say that my wife is an enemy of hot sauce just because she doesn't like it. You get that? Like, you, you with me on that? That's the way preferences work. Uh, but the problem is, is that's, that's the way we tend to look at religious truth, that it's simply a preference. So our assumption is that being a Christian or being something else is simply a preference of what you think will help you. Right? Well, this is helpful for me, that's helpful for someone else, everything's helpful, and maybe it's helpful to have nothing. Well, the problem with this is, not, is that this is not the assumption of Paul, because it's not the assumption of the Bible. So what I want to do is I want to lay out four assumptions Okay, four assumptions that will kind of govern what Paul is going to talk about. And the first is this. There is, there is a God and he can be known. There is a God and he can be known. That may sound like a big duh. I mean, you're in church, but hold off on a second. Because most of Western culture may hold on to the idea of a God, but not the fact that he or it or whatever you want to call it can actually be known, at least not truly. Maybe in part, but not truly. Other parts of Western culture may claim actually more than one kind of religious truth. More than one kind of God in that sense. We would never say that we're polytheistic or that we have a, a pantheon of deities. But at the end of the day, that's, that's what we think. And so the first of these says every religion has a piece of God. The second says that different mutually exclusive truths can exist at the same time. Uh, but the Bible, though, says that there is one God and he can be known because he reveals Himself. Look at this passage from Scripture. This is from John 1, the first chapter of, of John's Gospel, where he says, maybe this is familiar to you. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, that, that He was in the beginning with God, that all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Him was life, a life was the light of men. And then at the, in the bed, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Now, what this is talking is about is, is uh, the person of Jesus. That Jesus is actually God. That, that God is you know, more than one person. One God, but, but three different persons. And that that God has made Himself known. That He can be known and related to. And so... In, you know, in the ancient world, this would be silly because, because God was beyond people's understandings. Does this sound familiar? He's too, too big for anyone to actually understand him completely. And, and certainly, it's not a person to be known. It's more like a power to be appeased. But the assumption of the Bible is that there's one God and that he can be known. That's the assumption of our passage, okay? Second assumption. Second assumption is that this one God created everything, which means that everything is His. Again, in the ancient world, this would have been silly because in the ancient world, creation, what we, what we walk on, us, that we are a result of some kind of cosmic conflict. Almost every ancient worldview holds that creation is a form of conflict between opposing forces, order and chaos, right? Um, different gods, things like that. And their conflict created creation. That was the way of the ancient, a lot of ancient cultures to describe why stuff in life is just hard. That it kind of stinks at times. That it's rough. That things don't ever seem to work out the way we think they should. It's because, well, creation is bad and it's, it's chaos-oriented. It's conflict-oriented. But the Bible assumes that God created everything, including us, out of his pleasure and that everything being his also means not only did he create it out of his pleasure, but that he has authority over it. 
that he gives value to things. That he is a person who gives value to things, to people, to, to, uh, to uh, points of view, to actions, right? He's the one who gives those values, not us. Look at this from Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord. I made all things. Who alone stretched out the heavens. Who spread the earth out by myself. Who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners. Who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Why? Because he declares what is wise and what isn't. See? So, there's one God he can be known, that that one God created everything, and everything is his. The third assumption is this, that, that we as humans were made for dependence on him. Okay? We were made to love God and be loved by him. And that is what God declared to be our purpose. In, in uh, Genesis 1.26, look at these two passages. In Genesis 1.26, God says, let us, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, uh, which is a hinting. It's not a full talk of like a, a complexity in God, but it's a hinting. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. God said, let's make man like, let's make humanity like us. And then Isaiah 42, 5, um, thus says the Lord who created the heavens, stretched them out, spread out the earth and who comes from it, gives breath to the people on it and spirit or life, depending on the translation to those who walk in it. That God is actually the one who governs even our breath. We are in dependence on him. The problem is, is that we don't anymore, right? You know this. We've turned away from him. We've, we've betrayed him. We don't want dependence on him anymore. And, and, and the, that, that lacking or that desire to, for independence is not something that we have to learn. It's something we're born with. It's, it's nature, not nurture. Okay? Again, that's one of the assumptions of the Bible. Here, here's the last assumption. God is still God. God remains God, and the world is still his, whether we acknowledge him or not. <laughs> right? This is big because we tend to view God like fairies. Right? They don't really exist unless we believe in them. And the same with God. Like, well, he doesn't really matter unless we believe in him. Right? Because religious truth is a preference. And so, if you believe in God, that's fine. And you can follow. Okay, that's fine. Just don't let that impact me. But me, I don't, I don't really need that. And so, I don't really need to acknowledge him. But that's not the assumption of the Bible. In the assumption of the Bible, God remains God. The world remains his. We remain his creation. We think we're independent, autonomous, our own authority, but we are not. Okay? Check, the, check this out from Psalm 47. God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Like, everything belongs to God still. And, and this was written at a time when the only nation, quote-unquote, if you want to talk about a people group, that actually worshipped the God of the Bible was in a small little sliver of land in the, in the Near East. But God reigns over everyone. God is still God. We are still His, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Here's where this matters. We want to view God from our own perspective. Right? We want to view things from our own perspective. We will want him or not want him in our lives based on whether or not we think it will benefit us. Right? It is, I get that maybe there's a God, but what, what does it matter to me? Or, or is this going to help me at all in my life? In other words, if I don't think I need him, I can remain indifferent towards him. It's about us. It's about us. As if God is like the fuzzy blanket that's really nice, but only so long as it's cold. When it's warm, I don't, I don't need the fuzzy blanket, so what do I need to worry about God for? That's cool for you. The assumption of the Bible is, nope, 
God is God. And in fact, we are here for him, not vice versa. And so denying that doesn't make us neutral. You see that? It doesn't make us neutral. It actually makes us, it actually puts us on one side of the fence. We may think we're neutral. Ah, I'm not sure what I think about God. God says, it doesn't matter what you think about me. This is true. Ah, I'm not sure about that. Guess what? You're actually on this side of the fence. So hopefully that makes sense. In light of that, let's look at defining an enemy. Let's remember what uh, Paul's statement in verse 18. He says, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears. Now stop there really quick because that's a little important thing because we can hear what Paul is about to say and and think, that dude is so self-righteous and judgmental, right? Anytime that you hear the word enemies associated with religious truth, that's immediately what we think. Intolerance. And that means that we really need to get this part. Paul isn't happy about what he's about to tell you. He's not happy about what he's telling us. This isn't the dude who seems to celebrate how God is smiting people. He's grieving this truth, but it doesn't make it untrue. It's just something to grieve. So he says, for many of whom, he said, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, so what does that mean? Let me say it quickly and then flesh it out. It's really simple, actually. The enemies of the cross of Christ means uh, to be a non-Christian. And here's why. Go ahead back. Yeah. Go ahead back to that last one. Here's why. We left our assumptions with the notion that we are now by nature in rebellion against God, right? That that for most of us, some part in our lives, maybe maybe it's back so far as we can't remember, maybe it's like right now, we we kind of wanted to be indifferent towards the Lord. We want to be indifferent towards God. Like I don't really care about that. I'm not really interested in that. That doesn't I don't understand how that helps me. And and the Bible calls that rebellion. And and if that rebellion at its core is about wanting our own independence from God. Is it possible then for us to fix it? If, if our rebellion against God is our independence, is it possible for us on our own to fix it? And the answer would be, obviously no, of course not. That would be silly, and this is why Jesus came. Okay, listen close. If, if you're new to this, listen, listen really close to me. Jesus is not a guru. Right? Jesus is not this guy who, who came to be a teacher among many. As we saw in that John 1 passage, Jesus is God in the flesh. Fully God, fully human. And in Jesus, God came to deal with our rebellion. He lived perfectly like we couldn't. And then he died in our place to deal with our rebellion. Here's how. You know this uh, because this has happened to you. But when there is a betrayal, when someone betrays another person, uh, there are two things that can happen. Either Either the one who did the betraying bears the weight of that. We call that justice, right? Or the betrayed person bears the weight of that, and we call that forgiveness. In Jesus, God died to bear the offense for the offender, us. And so the cross is God dealing with our rebellion. So to be an enemy of the cross of Christ is to say, I don't need that. I don't want that. I don't really care about that. You with me? Because I want to make sure that we get this, because if we don't, we aren't going to get the rest. An enemy of the cross of Christ is just not like, um, it's just not like someone from ISIS who's off killing Christians. It is that, but it's not just that. It's anyone who looks to the cross, anyone who looks to the work of Jesus and says, that's fine for you, but I don't need that. 
I'm okay on my own. And that could be you because you don't believe you're actually that bad. That you don't really need to repent of anything. I don't involve God in my failures. (laughs) Or that you can get back to God on your own. Maybe it's through coming here. Maybe you think, look, I'm in church. I just put a check in that little basket that came across. Like, Or it could be that you just don't want to believe that there's a God in the first place. In any case, what you are doing, according to the Bible, is you're looking to God and you're saying, I reject you. I reject what you say about me. I reject what you think my problem is. And I reject your rescue plan. You see that? So an enemy of the cross of Christ is a non-Christian. Now notice what I didn't say. An enemy of Christians. I didn't say that. An enemy of the cross of Christ. Very important distinction. I wish we had more time to go into that, but that's what an enemy is. Now let's look at what one looks like. Because Paul follows up all this enemy talk uh, with, with this list of, of descriptors that he kind of loosely parallels. I'm not saying it's an obje- exact parallel, but he loosely parallels with this other group that he calls citizens of heaven. That for, that's shorthand in his mind for Christians. But let's look at those, let's look at the first of those, because he says that the enemy's end is destruction. Duh. Okay, that's tough language, right? That word end, Paul has used that several times. It means goal. It doesn't mean just like the end of a line. It means the goal that things are heading towards. The place in which someone's life is driving. He's used that multiple times to talk about Christians and their end in maturity, like moving towards that. But here he's talking about their end, their goal being destruction. And he parallels this with citizens who he says will have transformed bodies. Now let me break this down. Because, like I just said, God has been betrayed. The weight of that betrayal has got to be borne, right? I I said that a minute ago. When, when, When Paul says destruction, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about bearing the weight of your betrayal of God. And that should make perfect sense because of what I just said about the cross. Now, I, perfect sense doesn't mean you agree with it. I just mean, hopefully, it makes sense. It's logical. It, if the cross is where God bore the judgment due for our betrayal of him, and we don't want to have anything to do with the cross, where's that judgment got to go? We're going to bear that. That is what the Bible calls hell. It is for real. It's not just um, something to make scary movies about. That same judgment is what Jesus took on the cross. But for Christians, though, for citizens, it says the end is different. They're going to have transformed, transform four, it means our, but transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Um, Because we have placed our faith in Jesus, because we've returned to dependence on God, we're united to him, which means that his death for sin, his bearing of judgment becomes ours. And so there's no more judgment for us because we don't, not because, not because we don't deserve it. Like that's, that's, we need to be really clear with that one, too. We don't believe that there's no more judgment for us because Christians don't deserve it. Of course we do. But because Jesus bore it. Jesus already took it. The Christian awaits a glorious future because of what Jesus did, both his death and his resurrection. We will become like him. Become like his glorious body. So... On the one hand, an enemy of the cross is heading towards destruction. So there are different ends, but there are also different lords. Um, He says of enemies, their God is their belly. Now, 
he, he's not talking about this area of your body necessarily, okay? When he's talking about their belly, that is a word that is often used in the ancient world to, to, to um, communicate someone's passions, their drives, the things that motivate them, like the, the things, their, their movement towards their own satisfaction. And so what he means by their God being their belly means that they are enslaved, they are beholden to their passions. Here's what that means. Remember that assumption I said that, that we were made for God, made for dependence on him. We were made for him, that, that he doesn't exist for us, that we were made for him. Think of it like this. You and I were made for water, right? We were made to drink. Some of us prefer other liquids, but we were still made to drink something, okay? Uh, if we decide not to drink anything, and just eat, and hopefully get something out of our food so that we can quench our thirst. That won't work, will it? We'll constantly be thirsty. Eventually we'll die. (laughs) But we'll constantly be thirsty because we're like, we're made to drink. And the same is true with God. We were made for Him. And this inherent satisfaction in us, in in you and in me, this this sense of like, "Ah, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Can't get no satisfaction. Is there any other classic song I could quote? Like that's the point. All of these inherent dissatisfactions in us are born out of the fact that we can't seem to fill that space. How do we fill it? And at the same time, we are dead set on sating that desire in anything but God. We are we are like people who are dying of thirst but refuse to drink. So how this works is that we end up driven by our passions and we try to get satisfaction. And we will do this by serving whatever we think will do it. Our God becomes our belly, our satisfaction, our passions. So if we think um, what's going what's to give us satisfaction is sex, we'll, we'll, we will serve, we will chase that ultimate experience with everything in our being because of that. If we think uh, that, that it will come because of money or respect, or just forgetting for a while. We will serve those things to get it. And this is contrasted with Christians as citizens. He said, our citizenship is in heaven and from which we await a savior. Now, that makes um, very little sense to us or, or we get uh, some image of Jesus floating on clouds and coming down with a sword coming out of his mouth and it's weird. Uh, but that's not what, I mean, that, that's true. But that, what, Maybe not the sword. Anyway, that's, that's true, but it's probably not what he means here. Because you see, in Philippi, Philippi, I, you've heard me say this before, it was a Roman colony, which was a big deal in the Roman world. Because not everyone who lived in the empire of Rome was considered a Roman citizen. But if you started a colony, all the folks who began that colony were automatically given citizenship. And so Paul is saying our citizenship is in heaven And from that, we await a Savior. Again, why that would be a big deal, that word Savior, Paul, strangely enough, does not use that word very often. However, it was used often in the ancient world to speak about Caesar. Because you see, in the ancient world, Augustus Caesar was declared Savior. He was declared Savior because in a war-torn world, an empire that had been for years divided up and fighting against one another in civil war where everything had gone wrong, Caesar Augustus came and brought peace, the Pax Romana, okay? Remember, 
College history class, okay? The Pax Romana, he brought the peace of Rome, and for them it was as if he came and made all things right again. Paul is saying something incredibly countercultural. Our citizenship is actually from somewhere else. Our satisfaction will come from that Savior, not from this one. Christians don't have to chase satisfaction because they know that nothing in this world will satisfy them. Nothing will make us whole, will make things right. Only Jesus will because our hunger is not for stuff. Our hunger is for God, and only Jesus can reconcile us to God. Okay? With me? All right, last thing he says is that enemies glory in their shame. All right? He talks about different standards. That enemies glory in their shame. Here, here, this is pretty simple. The Bible assumes that now, since by nature we're turned away from God, oftentimes what we think is awesome isn't. That, that because... We are turned away. It's not just like only part of us is. It's that all of us is, including this little lump of gray matter up here that seems to decide what is good and what is not. And so oftentimes what we think is awesome is not. We glory, don't we, in our culture, especially in our independence. We glory in our moral fortitude. We glory in needing nothing. And God says that is not what you were made for. That is a sign not of having arrived but of being lost. It is trying to be what only God is. In the older theology books, they call it aseity. It means complete self-sufficiency. God is sufficient in and of himself. And we go, that's me. I'm going to be that. God goes, no, you can't. It's not what you were designed to be. And contrasted to this is the notion of Jesus subjecting all things to himself. Because you see, knowing that we were made for God, being subject to him is not bad. It's life. It's life, right? Think, for a fish made to breathe water, being subject to the ocean is not bad. It's glory. It's life. Now, notice, these are all the things that Paul says about enemies. Did you notice what he didn't say? He didn't say that an enemy of the cross of Christ is flatly immoral. He doesn't say that they look really immoral. Now, it could, but it doesn't have to. Because, you see, you can be driven by your passions. You can be glorying in shame and be very moral. Very moral. It isn't about keeping a set of rules. It's about being reconciled to God. And when it comes to reconciliation, there is no neutral ground. Okay? So how can it change? Look, I mean, look, there's no neutral ground, right? But maybe that doesn't matter to you this morning. Maybe you just don't care. I mean, maybe you still think this is a whole load of bunk. If so, that's okay. That's cool. Like, uh, stick around here. Keep checking things out, because I I want you to keep checking things out to, to really make an informed decision on that. But maybe for you, it does matter. Maybe you're realizing for the first time that this whole Jesus thing isn't simply an addendum to add on to your good life, to add on to your responsible living, to add on to to Whatever. Maybe you are seeing that the way you chase success or relationships or peace is a sign that you aren't really trusting in Jesus at all, even though you thought you were. You are awaiting a Savior, but it isn't Jesus. 
Or maybe you, you really are a Christian, but, but you're seeing this morning that your life looks like you are an enemy when you thought your life was great. The good news is that the answer for all of us, no matter where we're at this morning, from one end of that spectrum to the other, the answer for all of us is the same. It's the gospel, okay? Uh, it's the gospel. Paul says, at the very beginning of this passage, he says, imitate me, which is a crazy statement. It's a crazy statement because last week we heard him say, I have not arrived. I'm not there yet. And yet he's saying, imitate me. So why would you imitate someone who doesn't have it all together? It's this. You'd imitate someone who doesn't have it all together necessarily because Christianity isn't about you. It's not about you having it together. It's about Jesus. Paul's answer is to trust in Christ. It's to stop thinking that it's up to you and your ability. And so, going back to what we talked about last week, it's about forgetting what's behind. Knowing that the work of Christ, the cross of Christ, is able to cover your failures. That it all is taken care of. Uh, But it's also to trust in Christ so that you can, again, from last week, strain forward. This is what he's doing. Remember, he said, one thing I do... And then he mentioned two things, which is bizarre. But anyway, one thing I do, I forget and I strain. I forget what's behind and I strain forward. And you, you're able to trust Christ to strain forward because you know that you've been freed from the pressure to perform because Jesus has performed for you. But here's the thing. We've got we to all get this. So, so check back in if, you, if you've checked out. At the end of the day, we need to understand that Jesus is king and not us. Jesus is king, not us. This is God's world, not ours. Which means that God's offer of forgiveness in Jesus isn't, just to, isn't to make your life better. It's not to make my life better. So that if I think my life's going pretty good, I can go, yeah, I don't really need that right now. That's good for y'all who need a crutch, but I'm doing okay. It's not the offer of a traveling salesman who has a new product that he thinks you really need. It's the offer of a king to rebels. Rebels who will one day receive what is coming to them. He offers forgiveness. But not just that. The offer isn't just for forgiveness. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. To be able to offer you and I as rebels forgiveness before our king would be awesome, but it's not just that. He offers to make us heirs. Not just, not just forgiven, but heirs. Think of that. God takes rebels, and he makes them his kids. And so this morning, uh, please don't leave this place without considering this, without thinking on this. There is no neutral ground. I know you want to believe. I'm, Rick, I am squarely on the fence. Maybe but my guess is, is that that fence that you think you're sitting on is actually on the other side of another fence. The one that really matters. Because there is no neutral ground. You're either with him or you're not. The last thing I want to say really quick is the implications of this call of Paul. Because if he just said, imitate me, um, that would be really easy to kind of pass off. He's some cult leader and that's really arrogant and self-righteous and yada, yada, yada. But he he doesn't just say that. He says, uh, he says, imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And so if, if you're a Christian here this morning, let me tell you that this is what he's talking about is about Christian leadership. He's talking about Christian leadership, Christian maturity. 
And it is incredible that Paul can both say, look, in the previous, this is the verses right before this, look, I'm as broken as you are. I haven't arrived yet. And then go and say, so imitate me. And imitate those who do what I do. Because you notice he's not saying, go and do as I do. Or rather, he's not saying, go and do what I say, but not as I do. That's what a lot of Christian leaders do, right? Nor is he saying, be like like me because I'm awesome, which is what we get from other Christian leaders. Instead, he's saying, I'm a mess, but I'm a repentant mess. I haven't arrived, but I'm pressing towards becoming like Christ. Do you see the difference? If you aspire to being a mature Christian, I need you to listen close, okay? Listen really close, and I hope that's like... Everyone in this room who claims Christ, I hope you, go, you think to yourself, yeah, I would aspire to be a mature Christian. I'd aspire one day to, to, to be this that he's talking about. But I need you to listen close. Being a mature Christian means growing in the gospel. Yes, in one sense, going back even further, does it mean taking on the form of the life of Jesus? Like having your life look like the life of Christ? Absolutely it does. But it looks like that because the gospel has freed you to give your life away knowing, knowing that Jesus already gave himself for your life. You take on that form of life, but you're able to give your life away because you know that Jesus has already given himself for your life. What it doesn't look like is the arrogance to think that you are so much more mature than someone. Because you keep your particularly favored rules. Or needing to feel like you can walk up to someone and tell them everything you potentially struggle with so that they never see anything other than what you present them, as if you can see your own blind spots. Okay? Listen close, Holy Cross. I don't want you to imitate perfect Christians because they don't exist. Imitate those who walk in the gospel. Imitate those who repent quickly and give freely. Imitate those who seem to hunger for grace and thirst for Christ-likeness. Imitate those who seem to fearlessly face their brokenness and sin with trust in the love of God for them in Jesus. That's who we imitate. That's what a mature Christian looks like. And that is because their humility... And paradoxically, their confidence show that they have embraced the gospel instead of being its enemy. Their humility born from knowing themselves. I'm a mess. I'm broken. But their confidence in the acceptance of God accomplished for them by Jesus and Jesus alone. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, uh, we need to admit that we know that when it comes to reconciliation with you, there is no neutral ground. And yet, and yet, and yet, Lord, I know in myself I want to believe I can ride the fence, that I can say one thing and do another, that I can, that I can have a practical atheism when it comes to life. And others, we, we want to believe that we're just kind of checking things out. We're okay with you, and maybe we'll grab Jesus if we think we need him at one point. Lord, we need you to work to show us that the cross of Christ is your way of dealing with our deepest problems. And so we are either in Jesus or not. God, open our eyes to that. If some of us have been trusting in other things, I pray you'd give us repentance.
If some of us are still not sure what to think about you and about Jesus, I pray that you would show that to them as well. For the rest of us who want to try and play both sides, I pray that you would wake us up and help us live into the gospel to forget what's behind, to strain on to what's ahead, to, to continually to press in to that citizenship that we have in heaven and to await our Savior. And Lord, now as we come and we worship you in, in response to this, I pray that you would fill that worship with your spirit, that it would be pleasing to you, not because of how great we are, but because of your work in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name.